This morning we can open our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 7. We will be getting through chapter 7 and chapter 8 this morning as we continue our study through Hebrews, and we'll see a lot more from this mysterious figure Melchizedek, especially in chapter 7. And then in chapter 8, the author is going to demonstrate that this new covenant in Christ is better than the old covenant that was brought by Moses. Hebrews 7, verse 1, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being translated king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually. Very interesting passage right there. Um, He's talking about this figure Melchizedek, and we only see Melchizedek mentioned twice in the Old Testament. You have one, which is the original account of him historically in Genesis 14, and then uh, a psalm mentions him later, uh, Psalm 110 verse 4. In Genesis 14, we can see this story of Lot being captured. Lot is taken away with those who captured him, and Abraham pursues Lot's captors and brings Lot back. Now, after all of this has transpired, a few kings meet in the plain where they were fighting. Um, And they come together, and this Melchizedek meets with Abraham. It's a very interesting story. Um, I will read the excerpt uh, with Melchizedek to you. Starting in verse 18 of chapter 14, Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he gave him a tithe of all, that is, Abraham gave Melchizedek a tenth of the spoils. Now the king of Sodom said to Abraham, Give me the persons and take the goods for yourself. But Abraham said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand to the Lord God Most High, the possessor of heaven and earth that I will take nothing from a thread to a sandal strap, and that I will not take anything that is yours, lest you should say, I have made Abraham rich, except only what the young men have eaten, and the portion of the men who went with me. In Ur, Eshcol, and Mamre, let them take their portion. This is also a very interesting typology. We see historically it is accurate, of course, But typologically, it's just as interesting. Melchizedek, we see in our text this morning in Hebrews, can be translated king of righteousness. He also went by the name king of peace, king of shalom. Um, And both of these are apt descriptions of Christ. He is the king of king, lord of lords. He is our king of peace. He is our king of righteousness. Now, if you look at the name of that other king that's in this little picture in Genesis 14, um, his name means son of evil. Interesting. The king of righteousness and the son of evil both make propositions to Abraham. Okay? And this son of evil, did you see what he said? He said, give me the people. Keep the goods for yourself. Does that sound familiar? Satan uses that same line of logic. The son of evil is asking for the souls, telling you, hey, keep the stuff. Enjoy that good old material possessions, but give me the souls. Melchizedek comes and blesses Abraham. Abraham, in return, gives Melchizedek a tenth 
of the spoils. He gives him a tithe. Interesting little picture drawn there for us. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being translated king of righteousness and then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace. Without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually. We see here that Melchizedek was a priest of the Most High God. This is before the nation of Israel was established. Somehow, some way, God worked in the life of this Melchizedek to bring him to a knowledge of himself. Before the nation of Israel was even put together. Interesting, because we wonder about the guy on the island. You know, everybody talks about this guy on the island. How is he going to be judged justly if no one has ever told him about Jesus? Well, here is the guy on the island, Melchizedek. He is a priest of the Most High God. But he is not a priest after the Aaronic order or the Levitical order. It is a better order of priesthood, which we will see. In fact, this event in Genesis 14, when Melchizedek meets Abraham, Abram, um, that happens about 400 years before Aaron's birth, Aaron, the first high priest. This event predates Aaron by about 400 years. So Melchizedek was a priest before the Levitical priesthood was even set up, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all. Um, During that exchange, we know that Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek. Abraham paid a tenth part, first being translated king of righteousness, and that is the translation of Melchizedek itself, and then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace. And he just kind of lays it out for you right there. Uh, King of Salem, meaning king of peace. Without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the son of God remains a priest continually. Now, this is a confusing passage, and it's um, up for debate who Melchizedek actually was. There's a few theories, and I'll tell you the theories, and I'll tell you what I think. Um, Again, I encourage you to do your own study and uh, draw your own conclusions, but I don't think that the author is trying to say that Melchizedek is actually eternal. Um, I believe he was a man. There are people, and I'm not going to argue with you, if you think that Melchizedek is a Christophany, a pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. Uh, There are people that think that. Um, I tend to lean more towards the side of, you know, as a man who was a priest, Um, And it was a very apt typology of Jesus Christ, um, not being Jesus Christ himself. If this Melchizedek was Christ, then he would be literally eternal. However, we see that the text is saying that he was made like the Son of God. I believe that if it was the Son of God coming to the earth, it would say that he was the Son of God, not made like the Son of God. It says he remains a priest continually because he has no end. Jesus can continue to be our high priest. Earthly high priests pass away. And the writer talks more about that later in this passage today. But there was always a need to constantly replace those high priests who would die. And with Jesus in that spot as our high priest, we don't need to replace him ever. 
He is a high priest continually. And the author here is basically just saying in verse 3, this guy is a very good typology of Christ. Um, And we can draw things from that without father, without mother. In the genealogical record of the Bible, there's no mention of a Melchizedek. He's not found in the genealogies that we have. Um, In fact, and one of the reasons that I think that this is probably not Christ himself, we do have Christ's genealogy. We know exactly who he came from down through history, from Adam to Jesus Christ. And that is actually the focus of the genealogies in the Bible. The genealogies that we read through and we get kind of bored with, and sometimes we skip over, those are very important because they prove the lineage of Christ. Um, Through the tribe of Judah, not the tribe of Levi, which we'll also talk about in a little bit, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. There's no record of his birth or his death, speaking of Melchizedek. Um, Just like Jesus is eternal, okay? And it is also worth noting that when we talk about this typology of Christ in Melchizedek, we're talking about Christ as the eternal God. Jesus is God in that he is eternal. He was there at the beginning. He actually created the world, we know from scripture. In Melchizedek, we see a picture of Jesus as God, okay, his eternality. But made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually. Now consider how great this man was, to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils. Interesting uh, contemplation there. Abraham was held in very, very high regards in the Jewish faith. And he still is to those people. He was the man promised by God to bear the nation of Israel through his seed. But even Abraham, this very revered patriarch, paid a tithe to this Melchizedek. And we know that the lesser pays tithes to the greater. Um, If the president came up here and he was talking to you and you felt the need to pay him a tithe, that would be more acceptable than the president coming in and paying you a tithe, right? Or me a tithe. Okay, so the lesser pays tithe to the greater. And indeed, those who are the sons of Levi, who receive the priesthood, have a commandment to receive tithes from the people according to the law, that is, from their brethren, though they have come from the loins of Abraham. So the Levites, who were the priesthood uh, in the Levitical law, Um, they were instructed to receive tithes from the other tribes, from all the other Israelites. So all the people would pay tithes to the Levites, and that would sustain them. That was like their wages, okay? And he's saying here, even these guys, the sons of Levi, the priesthood, would take money from their brothers, you know, to sustain themselves. But Melchizedek, not even being part of that lineage, was paid tithes by, and we'll look at the next verse here, but he whose genealogy is not derived from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. God promised Abraham a great nation would come from him. God literally promised this man something very personal and very applicable in his life, And Abraham was the one blessing Melchizedek. Now beyond all contradiction, the lesser is blessed by the better. Here, mortal men receive tithes, but there he receives them, of whom it is witnessed that he lives. Even Levi, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, so to speak, for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. So further into this argument, He says, even Levi was paying tithes to Melchizedek through Abraham because Levi was in the lineage of Abraham. Abraham would eventually propagate so that Levi would come into existence. And in that way, 
Levi, while still in his loins, paid tithes to Melchizedek. Interesting argument, and he makes a good point. Therefore, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should rise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be called by the order of Aaron, according to the order of Aaron? Another good point. If the Levitical priesthood was all that in a bag of chips, if it was just everything you needed, why would you have to replace it? You wouldn't. And we'll talk about the animal sacrifices in chapter 10, I believe it is. But these animal sacrifices were made day after day after day continually. If a lamb could cover our sins, wipe that slate clean, think about it. There would be no need to offer another one. Therefore, we see that the lamb is just a picture of what would come in Jesus Christ. Jesus, being the perfect sacrifice, only has to offer himself once. It is actually effective to wipe away those sins. What further need was there that another priest should rise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be called according to the order of Aaron? Look at the beginning of verse 11 with me. This word perfection, it's not talking about sinlessness, okay, but rather a perfect standing with God, okay, justified, completed. This is something that the, the Levitical priesthood, along with those animal sacrifices and the entire law, cannot do. It cannot perfect you in God's eyes. This is something that only the substance of this picture can do in Jesus. What further need was there that another priest should arise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be called according to the order of Aaron? For the priesthood being changed of necessity, there is also a change of the law. And of course, this is logical. If the priesthood is changed, then the, all, the whole law kind of fades away. The law was so inextricably tied to this priesthood. The priests were the ones who would offer the sacrifices for the people. Without the priesthood, you have no sacrifices. You have no way to come to God unless there was made a better way. And being this side of history, we know what that better way is. We don't have to guess and hope. We have it actually in the word of God. Uh, it's a wonderful place to sit here this morning. For the priesthood being changed of necessity, there's also a change of law. For he of whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe from which no man has officiated at the altar, the tribe of Judah. Jesus comes from the tribe of Judah, not the tribe of Levi. In the earthly sanctuary, under the law, Jesus would not be considered to be a priest. He couldn't because he wasn't born of the right tribe for that. But with this change of the priesthood, Jesus most certainly is qualified. And the author spent a good chunk of chapter 5 in Hebrews talking about the qualifications that Jesus meets and exceeds for being priest. I'd encourage you to go back and look at those um, if you're not sure what I'm talking about. Uh, but according to the power of an endless life, like his type in Melchizedek, Christ has no beginning nor end of days. He created the world and is eternal in himself. And this is part of his qualifications for priesthood. For he of whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe from which no man has officiated at the altar. For it is evident that the Lord, that our Lord arose from Judah, 
of which tribe Moses spoke nothing concerning priesthood. And it is yet far more evident if, in the likeness of Melchizedek, there arises another priest who has come, not according to the law of a fleshly commandment, but according to the power of an endless life. For he testifies, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. But according to the power of an endless life. In 1 John, we are told that Christ is our mediator or lawyer. Okay, if you think about this idea of a lawyer, he's the go-between between you and the judge. He says, hey, this guy is innocent. He pleads on your behalf. This is your lawyer. Jesus, in the same way, intercedes for us at the throne of God day and night. Satan comes around accusing us. I'll say, God, did you see that casing down there? He's been pretty messed up today. God says, yeah, I mean, you're right. He's done some bad things. He's slipped up a few times. But Jesus steps in and says, yes, I saw that, but it's covered. Put it on my tab. It's already been taken care of. And Jesus intercedes for us. He is our lawyer. And with Jesus, you never have to worry about that call that your lawyer has just passed away. You need someone else to represent you. You know, that, that's not a fun time for anyone. But you don't have to worry about it. But the power of an endless life. 17. For he testifies, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, there is an annulling of the former commandment because of its weakness and unprofitableness. For the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there is the bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. So we see here that there are a couple of things that happen with this introduction of the new priesthood. Okay, For one, the former commandment is annulled. It is made of no effect. And this former commandment refers specifically to the ordaining of the priests, but more generally to the law as a whole. There is an annulling of the former commandment because of its weakness and unprofitableness. Now, I I think it's worth noting that the weakness and unprofitableness does not stem from the law itself, but from the people's ability to follow the law. Okay, if someone followed the law letter by letter their entire life, they would be sinless. Really, it is constructed in such a way that that person would be sinless. And if they're sinless, They don't need saving. There's one person that that applies to. That is the person of Jesus Christ. So it's not that the law itself is weak and unprofitable, but people make the law unprofitable. It's just like a mirror. Okay. And you, you might've heard Justin talk about this before. He loved to use this analogy of a mirror. And I learned this from him. But the law shows you what's wrong. But it doesn't fix anything in itself. You can get up in the morning and look in the mirror and say, oh my goodness, what is that? Something's staring at me. Your hair's all messed up. Maybe your beard's messed up. But you can't fix that with the mirror. You need to go grab a hairbrush, comb through your hair. That actually fixes the problem. The law just shows people that you're messed up. It does not fix that in itself. The former commandment, because of its weakness and unprofitableness, for the law made nothing perfect. It didn't fix anything. On the other hand, there is the bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. So since this new covenant has been put into place, the old covenant has faded out. Yes, that is true. 
but also this new covenant brings in a better hope. I hope that no one here is very familiar with animal sacrifices. Um, I've thankfully never had to perform one. But imagine you have your family and you're going to the temple to sacrifice an animal, whether it be a dove to a goat or a bull. You're going in to sacrifice an animal. You lay your hand on its head while the priest slits its throat and you let it bleed out in front of you. And next week you come back and do it again. Perpetually. You keep offering another animal, another animal, to try to atone what it was never meant to atone for. It was a picture. It was a mirror that showed you, I've messed up. I had to come offer this sin offering. And by touching its head, you transferred, so to speak, your guilt from yourself to the animal. And then the animal was killed. It was a constant reminder that death is the penalty for our sin. And you couldn't escape that in the Old Testament times. You kept, have to, you kept having to offer these animals. But there is now a better hope. I thank God that I do not have to do that. Um, and we still have reminders that you know, sin produces death. It's all around us. When a loved one dies, that's hard. And we see that because of our sin, death occurs. Death is literally brought into the world because of sin. God didn't create everything this way. He created it perfectly. It was us that came in and messed it up. But that's not how it's supposed to be. For on the one hand, there is an annulling of the former commandment because of its weakness and unprofitableness. For the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there is the bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. Through which we draw near to God. It's by Jesus that we can come to God unashamed, confidently. The scripture tells us that we can approach his throne confidently by what Jesus has done. It is by his sacrifice that we can finally draw near to God without the need for a priest. If you go to a a church or another religious organization and you hear them saying, come Saturday night to the priest to confess your sins, he will take them to God and you will be absolved. Run. Do not walk away run away, uh, because that is not what scripture tells us. Through which we draw near to God. There is no longer a need for a priest to mediate between us and God. Jesus is our high priest. 20, and inasmuch as he was not made priest without an oath, for they have become priests without an oath, but he with an oath by him who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. I think we've heard that before. And inasmuch as he was not made priest without an oath, that just means he was made priest with an oath. Okay, there's a a double negative in there, which strengthens the language. Inasmuch as he was not made priest without an oath, for they have become priests without an oath. Um, here speaking of the earthly priesthood. Um, you go back and read the, the steps for ordaining a priest in the Old Testament, you will see that there is no oath spoken of. They did not need to take an oath to become a priest. Um, it was more of a, a ritual. They would sacrifice some animals and um, anoint the priests with blood and oil, and that was the process for being initiated, I guess you could say. Uh, But there was not an oath included in that. I think, and this is my speculation, I think that God probably reserved 
that oath for Jesus to strengthen the fact that this is now his priesthood. Um, I think that he intentionally withheld an oath from the Levitical priesthood. But he, with an oath, by him who said to him, okay, a lot of he's and him's, but he, being Jesus, swore in with an oath by the Father who said to Jesus, the Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. And that quote is from Psalm 110.4, the second mention of Melchizedek in the Old Testament. By so much more, Jesus has become a surety of a better covenant. Also, there were many priests because they were prevented by death from continuing. But he, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Through the years, the priests would die and be replaced by others. The priesthood was constantly changing. But Christ has this unchangeable priesthood because he continues in life forever. It is unchangeable. He is unchangeable, and his priesthood, therefore, is unchangeable. The tomb is empty, and he is now seated with the Father, making intercession for us. We'll see later in Hebrews, I think we'll see it today, that Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. This is significant because priests, when they were ministering in the the tabernacle, were not allowed to sit. They had to remain standing because their work was never finished. They kept having to offer sacrifices. That job was never done. Jesus, on the cross, said, it is finished. Finally, the sacrifices can stop. The one sacrifice is complete. It's what you need. By so much more, Jesus has become a surety of a better covenant. Also, there were many priests because they were prevented by death from continuing. But he, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. And he is seated at the right hand of the Father right now, making intercession for us. And that is a surety of a better covenant. After so many years of the priest standing in the tabernacle, offering sacrifices, Jesus takes a seat. It is finished. We see in verse 25, therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him. Now, this verse is commonly applied to the lost, but its main application is actually to the saved. Okay, and yes, God can save someone from the uttermost, from the deepest depths of human depravity. He can lift them up, but he does so to the uttermost. And that's what it's saying here. He is also able to save to the uttermost for eternity, forever and ever, to the uttermost, those who come to God through him, since he, is all, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So yes, he can save from the uttermost, and plenty of scripture tells us that. This scripture is talking more about the saved being saved for eternity to the uttermost. For such a high priest was fitting for us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens, who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints as high priests men who have weaknesses, but the word of the oath which came after the law, appoints the Son, 
who has been perfected forever. In 26, he says, for such a high priest was fitting for us. Fitting for us is not saying uh, that, you know, we are as good as Jesus. You know, we were way up here, so he had to be way up here to be fitting for us. That's not what it's saying, okay? And you may or may not have taken it that way, but the author is really just saying that Jesus meets every need that we could ever have. He is fitting to fill every hole in us, in every one of us. You know, there's a hole. It's a little Jesus-shaped hole in your heart. And sometimes we'll try to fill it. You know, we'll turn to alcohol, to sex, to drugs, to money, to success, to self-awareness. We'll turn to so many things. You know, take your pick. It doesn't matter. But nothing quite fits in that little hole like Jesus does. And he's the only thing that satisfies that desire for us. For such a high priest was fitting for us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens. None of Aaron's offspring None of the descendants of Levi can measure up to this description of Jesus. Holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners. No man can live up to that. Only the God-man, Jesus Christ. And has become higher than the heavens. Who does not need daily, as those high priests, to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the people's. You know, we've touched on this previously. Jesus, being sinless, didn't have to offer a sacrifice first for himself, like the earthly high priest did. He was perfect. No need to wipe away anything he's done. But he paid a debt that we owed. He had no need to pay it for himself, but he stepped in on our behalf. For this he did once for all, when he offered himself up. Once for all. There's no need for continuing sacrifices. There's no need to continually sacrifice Christ. He did it once and for all. Now, this phrase, once for all, comes from a Greek word meaning upon one occasion only, and it also means at once for all. Depending on the inflection that you place on once for all, you can read the verse as once for all people, once for all, once for all people, or you can read it as once for all of time, once for all. Both readings are absolutely true of this sacrifice. And based on the author's word choice here, I believe that he intended to communicate both meanings. Yes, this sacrifice is effectual for all people. If you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, this sacrifice is then applied to you, and you are absolved of your sins. Yes, that is true. Yes, he did it once for all time. There is no need to re-sacrifice anything, even himself, once for all time. For the law appoints as high priests men who have weaknesses, but the word of the oath which came after the law appoints the son who has been perfected forever. Again, this word perfected uh, carries a denotation of completion. It is finished perfected. Chapter 8. Now this is the main point of the things we are saying. You're thinking, finally. It does get wordy, but this is the main point of what he's trying to say. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary, and of the true tabernacle 
which the Lord erected, and not man. Now he alludes to an argument that he's about to make in chapter 9, here with the, the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected. Later, next week, we will look at the earthly sanctuary and the heavenly sanctuary, and how the tabernacle is simply a picture of what is actually in heaven. Very interesting little study we'll get into. But in chapter 8 here, he is going to prove that the new covenant is far better than the old covenant. And he opens this up by summing up his previous point. And verse 2 is going to open that next major point. Verse 3, for every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it is necessary that this one also have something to offer. For if he were on earth, he would not be a priest, since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law, speaking of the Levites, who serve the copy and shadow of the heavenly things. As Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle, For he said, this is God speaking, see that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. But now he has obtained a more excellent ministry inasmuch as he is also a mediator of a better covenant, which was established on better promises. Verse three, for every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it is necessary that this one also have something to offer. For if he were on earth, he would not be a priest, since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law. There were already people in place to offer gifts to God um, according to the law, and he would not be considered because he was not from the tribe of Levi. Five, who serve the copy and shadow of the heavenly things as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle. God said to Moses, I need you to build this tabernacle exactly as I instruct you. Do not deviate from these instructions at all. Why? Because it is a picture. Because what the tabernacle represents is real. It's not a fairy tale. It's not made up said, hey, here's this nice little picture of something imaginary. No. It is something real that Moses is supposed to be representing with the tabernacle. Um, And that picture is (laughs) so very intricate. And we do not have time to go into all the intricacies in the tabernacle this morning. But I am looking forward to doing that when we get to Exodus. Lord willing, we will get to Exodus. The tabernacle being a picture of the heavenly throne room of God. Once a year, the high priest would enter the Holy of Holies to intercede on the people's behalf. He would come to God in the tabernacle. Now, that Holy of Holies being a picture of the throne room of God Jesus is now in the Holy of Holies. He is seated next to the Father in heaven, and he is making intercession for us. Not one day a year, every day, every second. I have an advocate with the Father. Who served the copy and shadow of the heavenly things as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle. For he said, see that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. Uh, That is when Moses was receiving the instructions for the tabernacle and the rest of the law. It would have been on Mount Sinai that this all occurred. Keep in mind, too, that while Moses was uh, receiving this law from God, Aaron was down at the base of the mountain building a golden calf for the people to worship. Aaron, the first high priest, was down there sinning. The law failed, in effect, before it was even instituted. The earthly sanctuary is so flawed. Now we have a better sanctuary, a better ministry, and a better covenant in Jesus Christ. 
but now he has obtained a more excellent ministry inasmuch as he is also mediator of a better covenant, which was established on better promises. Interesting that he throws in there, which was established on better promises. You know, the promise that established the old covenant was conditional. God said, you obey my statutes and my commandments, and I will be your God and you will be my people. That was the promise that established this old covenant. Now coming into the new covenant, we'll see these new promises that God makes. Verse 7, for if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. Because finding fault with them, he says, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they did not continue in my covenant, and I disregarded them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. None of them shall teach his neighbor and none his brother, saying, Know the Lord. For all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. In that, he says, a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Let's go back and look at that new covenant one more time. In verse 7, for if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second. No, logic dictates this. If the first one is all you need, why look for a second one? Because finding fault with them, he says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. And the the last verse in this chapter, uh, 13 the writer, I believe it's Paul, makes an argument that simply because God said new covenant, because he said that back in Jeremiah, where this quotation is taken from, Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, um, just because he says new covenant means that the current one which they were in, the old covenant, is actually old. There would not be a new covenant if the one that they were in was still new. You know, it's kind of semantics, but it's true. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. It's not according to the old covenant. Okay, if a Christian tells you, You have to obey the Sabbath to be a Christian. You have to observe the feast. You have to make some sacrifices to be a good Christian. No, it's not according to the old covenant. It's completely new. It is founded on a better principle. It's founded on faith. It's not founded on your works. It is not according to the covenant that God made with Israel. In the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they did not continue in my covenant, and I disregarded them, says the Lord. Some fairly stout words there. Disregarded them. Now, he says that they did not continue in my covenant. What does that mean? Well, I mentioned a second ago that this covenant, this old covenant, was conditional. The Israelites had to do their part, and God would do his part. There are several instances, I mean, literally throughout the whole Old Testament, that the Israelites fell short on their part of the deal. What did God do? You know, I I don't understand when people say, oh, the God of the Old Testament is nothing like the God of the New Testament. 
the God of the Old Testament has wrath, he has hatred and malice, and he just wipes everybody out. The God of the New Testament is loving, you know, gracious, kind. No, no. The same God is in both parts of the Bible. And his grace, his mercy is clearly seen through his dealings with his people, Israel. The people in Israel fashioned this golden calf right after they were brought out of the wilderness. Well, I suppose they were still in the wilderness. They were brought out of Egypt, right? And they saw all these miracles. They still messed up. They got caught into idolatry. What does God do? You know, it's kind of funny seeing the exchange between God and Moses there. God's like, I'm going to strike them down. Moses is like, no, no, God, don't do that. God says, I'm going to kill them off, and I'm going to make you their father. And I'm going to make a great nation of you instead of using Abraham. Moses intercedes for the people, says, no, God. Then we'll be the laughingstock of this entire like area. You can't, can't do that. So God relents. God says, you know what, you're right. And not that he ever changed his mind. He's like, yeah, I, I acknowledge that, Moses. You're right. So what does he do? He reinstitutes the people of Israel as his people. Over and over, the people mess up. They break the covenant. It's over. But it's not. God reinstates them each and every time. His love, his mercy, and his grace are shining through throughout the Old Testament. Same as the New Testament. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they did not continue in my covenant, and I disregarded them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. You know, Paul sums it up pretty well in Romans 8, 3 through 4. He says, for what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law may be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. This new covenant involves an inner change of the heart. I'd encourage you this week to read through 2 Corinthians 3. That gives you some more insight into this heart change aspect of the new covenant. Um, and Paul makes a couple more arguments there that we really don't even see in Hebrews directly um, for why the new covenant is superior to the old covenant. Very interesting little read. God is saying in these verses this morning that he is going to put everything in you that he wants out of you. You're not going to have to give him anything that he hasn't already given you. You know how to serve him. You know that in your heart. He's written it in your heart and on your mind. You don't have to go into the law and read how to serve God. You know, I should be in the word. I should have a prayer life. I should be talking to God. You know these things. He has already written them in your hearts. And Further, you don't need me to tell you what's right and wrong. You know, back in the day, Moses would go to God, say, hey, God, this is the issue that we're facing as a nation. God would talk back to Moses, and then Moses would relay it to the people. That was his kind of, that was his job. We don't need to do that anymore. You can go directly to God. My job is to teach you the word on Sunday mornings. But I shouldn't really be teaching you anything. I believe it was 1 John who said that the Spirit teaches us. 
it gives us understanding. And that's something that we all have. We all have the same Holy Spirit living inside us as a born-again believer. And what should be happening is the Spirit is working in your life throughout the week. He's nudging you, kind of prodding you in the way that you should go. It's gentle. You know, the Holy Spirit is gentle to us, but he lets you know. He's, he's not um, confusing in that. He's nudging you in this certain way. You come to church Sunday morning, we open up God's word inspired by the same Holy Spirit that lives inside you, and he confirms exactly what he's nudging you towards. It is remarkable how that works. Um, and I've had that experience personally, and I'm sure that uh, many, if not all of you, have as well. Or, you know, that's, that's one example, but on the contrary, you're going through your week, you're struggling with some type of sin. And you know that you shouldn't be doing this. I mean, it's, it's really bugging you. And it's nagging you. you. Can't really get it off your mind. You try to rationalize it. You know, oh, well, A plus B equals C. So therefore, this sin is okay. And you, you struggle with that. You come to church Sunday morning. You open your Bibles. Bam. There it is in our scripture for the morning, right? And it just conf it convicts you further. The Holy Spirit is working throughout this entire process. And you do not need me to tell you that that's wrong. But the Holy Spirit has already written it on your heart and on your mind. We might just confirm it uh, this morning or uh, Sunday mornings. For all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. Verse 12, for I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds. I will remember no more. And of course, God is all-knowing. He can't forget something, but he can choose not to remember it. And that is exactly what he does for the sins of the one who is covered by the blood. If you are covered by the blood, he remembers your sins no more. What a wonderful promise. This is a better promise than the old covenant. And I don't think anybody's arguing that. We see this this morning, and it's so clear. Jesus is a surety of a better covenant. There is mercy for you and me. Our sins will be remembered no more. We are justified in the eyes of God, justified, just as if you've never sinned. We'll see in Hebrews 10 that there was no remission of sins uh, based on the animal sacrifices. But there was only that remembrance of sin. Yeah, I'm a sinner, and I need something more to permanently wipe that away. John the Baptist said, when he saw Jesus approaching, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Behold. And I'm pointing you to the same Jesus this morning that John the Baptist pointed people to so many years ago. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In that, he says, a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. You know, we, we said this before, but just the fact that he says there is a new covenant makes the old one old. So I would encourage you this week as we go out of this place and back to our jobs and school, whatever you've got going right now, don't ignore the law that has been written on your hearts and written in your mind. Um, that prodding, the gentle nudge from the Holy Spirit is what you need to direct your life, your actions, everything. Jesus is the cornerstone. He should be the stone that every other piece of your life is measured off of. He's in the middle, and the angles that Jesus creates should be carried out through the rest of the structure, the rest of your life. 
don't ignore the writing on your hearts and on your minds. Let him guide you this week and let him use you. Let him lead you. Let's pray as we close our study.